Well, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. We are in a section of First Peter that is explaining how Christians are to live in an unbelieving society. It's kind of come with these different uh, areas of life uh, to help us understand how to live. Uh, last week, if you guys were here, we touched on the civil sphere of society, and today we're going to start talking about the social sphere of society, specifically how do Christians relate to unbelievers in the workplace. So Peter is going to be addressing bond servants in this section, and they were indentured servants that lived in the house of their masters, and they helped maintain the household. They had a lot of uh, heavy responsibility to keep that household in uh, apple pie order. Peter is going to use them as a paradigm or as a model for all Christians. Isn't that interesting? The lowest in society are actually going to be raised up as a model for all of us to live by. All Christians should behave when they are mistreated. That's the model. If you guys remember last week, Peter talked, uh, talked about and called Christians, all Christians, regardless who they are, as slaves of God, right? Servants of God. And so Peter is addressing this question. How do Christians respond to suffering unjustly from someone else? Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray. King Jesus, we've come to worship you today on this Palm Sunday, and we gather with millions and millions of our brothers and sisters this beginning of Holy Week to think of you and what you went through this week for our good, for our benefit for our blessing and we are thankful and so Jesus we need you to tell us tell us what's real tell us what reality is we get uh, mixed up on that and we need you to to tell us what is true and good and right we live in a world that thinks that true strength is found in power and flexing power but we remember at the beginning of Holy Week that true power comes in humility. You show us that true strength doesn't come from it flexing your muscles, but in suffering. So Lord, would you prepare our hearts today to hear what is good and right and true from you. Help me speak it 
in a way that pleases you and is plain to your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll grab some water real quick. So, there are several challenges for us when we come to a passage like this in the scripture. And one of those challenges is, well, how in the world do we apply this to our life? There's some historical distance, right, between what was going on then and us now. The fact is that in our society and in much of the wider world, uh, there is no more institutional slavery as a class in society. And we praise God for that. And, and by the way, I want to briefly uh, add something that this is the case historically because of the spread and the influence of Christianity not despite of it, not despite passages like this. So I just want to put that out there. I think that's important to mention. And so while it is not exactly the same environment, it is certainly not the same experience of the Christian bondservants. There are points of similarity, however, to employment, to an employer-employee relationship. We do have bosses that exercise authority over us in regards to the tasks that they assign for us to do, uh, when to do them, how they want them done, when they want them done, and consequences if we don't get them done. Am I right? And we spend the lion's share of our life at work. It's a part of our life. The fact of the matter is, if we're going to be honest here, we don't all work our dream job, do we? Am I right? Can the church say amen? amen. We don't all work our dream job, which means we don't all do work that we necessarily enjoy doing. Sometimes, for some of us, we took that job because we needed to keep a roof over our head and the pantry stocked, and that's why we took the job. Sometimes we took the job because that is all that was on offer in a down economy. And it looks like we'll be stuck in that job with that boss, with those people for the foreseeable future if we don't get fired first. Like that's just a situation. We don't have an opportunity to put a resume out. We can't leave that situation. We are stuck in that, that job, in that situation. And while many times we have bosses that they are good men, they are good women, sometimes they are not. They're not pleasant to work for. They know that we're stuck in that job. Their leadership style is demanding, or maybe it's just leading by chaos. They just make chaos and expect everyone else to fix that, and that's how they lead. Or maybe their management style is just stifling. Micromanage everything we do. Sometimes they do, let's be honest, some deplorable things. They sometimes say demeaning things. Sometimes they will make our life harder because we, as Christians, actually live and work according to the teachings of Christ. We don't drop that at the door when we go to work. We bring God to work with us. And so the question is, as you can see, it becomes a, a little bit more relevant of a passage for us now. How do we respond in those situations when someone in authority over us treats us unjustly and they continuously treat us unjustly? And, and, and here's the big idea for today. Here's Peter's answer. Christians choose suffering 
over sinning. I know that's not the answer you want to hear, right? Like, you don't want me to preach that message. I know that. But that's what Peter says. Here's how we respond to unjust treatment and suffering. Christians choose suffering over sinning. And so what I want to do today is just give three reasons that Christians do choose suffering over sinning. And the first is this. Because God will commend us for enduring instead of retaliating. Our God will commend us for enduring suffering instead of retaliating. Let's go right to the text, verse 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now the phrasing and the flow in these verses, it's, it's kind of clunky, it's a little hard to understand, at least it was for me when I read it, especially verses 19 and 20, but, but what, what's going on here is that Peter is emphasizing our response in a particular situation that he's, that he's kind of framed here. Our response, does our response lead to sin or does it lead to us doing the good, doing the right? Basically, Peter is saying that Christians should seek to obey their bosses in a way that is mindful of their relationship with God. Obey without sinning against God. And we're gonna hold those two things together always. Those are the two things we're doing when we go to work as Christians. Obey our boss without sinning against God. See, we have to be really thinking people when we go to work, do we not? We don't just go do our job. We should have the disposition, in other words, towards accommodating and obeying whatever task our boss gives us, even if they are a jerk, even if they mistreat us. We should have that general disposition of how can I accommodate you, sir or ma'am? I think Peter, what he's getting at, he's implying something. I think he's getting underneath something to our heart here. I think that he's implying that when we feel like we are working for an unjust boss, we naturally look for ways to not work when we're at work. Am I right? That's kind of our default mode, our attitude when we're working for something we, we think is unjust. How can I not work and still call it work? We look for ways to avoid doing what we were asked to do in an attempt to level the scales of justice in our favor. How can I put my boss over a barrel by getting this done? But Christians are to have a reputation of being willing to work, not being forced to do their job. We are not to be the ones dragging our feet to the job site every day, and we are not to be the ones dragging our feet at the job site 
every day. Always questioning the assignment before then we'll finally do the assignment. Christians are not to be the ones asking for special treatment and special exceptions and extensions on deadlines that give our bosses and supervisors headaches and heartburn and make progress basically impossible for the company. Hey, you want that done by Friday, boss? I'll have it done Friday morning. That should be our attitude, basically, our general overall disposition. Christians are not to be seen by their bosses as doing minimal effort sabotaging the company actively or with passive aggressiveness, stealing from the company, creating dissensions in the locker room or the break room or the boardroom. That's not our reputation. We shouldn't have that reputation. Peter says that when Christians come to work, our gear setting should be set to drive, not reverse or park. I showed up. You're welcome. No, we put it in drive when we go to work. You got the next slide? Where's Zach? There we go. We're to be set to drive, not park. Thank you. And to be motivated into the drive gear through punishment, Peter is suggesting, is shameful. It's a shame on us. If we have to be threatened to do it, regardless of whether a boss is good or whether they're an unjust boss. And here is why we have an attitude of obedience and accommodation to our bosses and our supervisors. It's not because we're afraid of them. And, and it's not because we know they might give us goodies. Okay? Here's why. Peter says, because we are mindful of God. We're mindful of God, and that's why we do it confidently, not cowardly, not scared. Let, let me explain what I think that he means by that. He's, he, he's saying, look, we, we obey and accommodate our boss's instructions because we have a God consciousness now. That's what he means by mindful of God. We have a God awareness, a God consciousness now that we have been born again into a living hope. Back to chapter one, verses one and two, right? We want to do whatever pleases our Lord because we know that he has given something to us and an imperishable inheritance with him forever. And we love God for that. So we want to do whatever pleases our Lord. So there are going to be times when we cannot obey everything our boss tells us to do because we are God conscious now. We've been awakened to God now and we know that God is everywhere. He comes to work with us because he's God. There may be things that our, our boss tells us to do, uh, do some things or sign off on some things or that, that, that may be unethical or maybe even illegal. We know that's breaking the standard or the ordinance or whatever. But there's a deadline, there's a crunch, there's a whatever. Now go do it. Uh, our boss, him or her, they, they may ask us to do things that are technically legal, but they're done in a way that violate or demean God's good creation. Or maybe they violate his created order of life. Do it that way. But God has made it this way that life functions. And we're being told to do it another way. 
And so because we are God conscious now, because we are mindful of God, we cannot do and say or approve or comply with all of those tasks, or maybe just not the way, the way it's being said done. And so we can't comply with all of that. And guess what? That's going to make our unjust boss really angry at us, right? They're not going to like that. Because we're giving them a headache, making them look bad, slowing down production, whatever. They're not going to like that. They don't care if it's Sunday morning. They don't care what you think about it. It needs to be done. That's an unjust boss would talk that way, not a just boss. And so that's going to give them reason to make your life a little harder. It's going to make you suffer for that because you're making them suffer, they think. That's how they interpret it. And so they're going to make our, uh, give them reason to make us suffer. Maybe that's doing tasks that are beneath us now that are embarrassing, that the junior guy should be doing, but now you're going to go do that for a week or two. Maybe it's dressing us down in front of other employees, or maybe it's by demoting us or forcing us to work extra time when we don't have time to give. And, other, and so here what Peter is saying is this. Peter's basically saying it is better for us to endure suffering because we are obeying and honoring God than to endure suffering because we have actually sinned against our boss that we don't like. And we're just trying to stick it to him or her. In other words, it's better for us to endure suffering because we generally try to accommodate as much as possible to our boss's instructions, but not on this one than for us to suffer because we are constantly and we are consistently an insubordinate, resistant worker who is trying to retaliate or get the better of our boss every day that we go in. Which is something that all people consider worthy of punishment anyway. There's no honor in that. That's not living honorably. So Peter says that when we live in this way, when we obey our bosses in a way that is mindful of God, and we're doing both of those things, and we suffer for it, it's a gracious thing to God. In his eyes, it's a gracious thing. That means it causes God to comment favorably on a life like that. He goes, whoa, I saw that. I've got a comment about that. That's commendable. That's rewardable. It's a life, in other words, that God rewards and commends, though it doesn't feel good and it doesn't feel very commendable in the moment. When we choose to suffer over sinning, that shows that we're really not living for earthly rewards and earthly respect and promotions and commendations. Rather, we really are living for a heavenly inheritance that cannot be stolen or defiled. And God will commend us for that on the last day. God will commend you for that on the last day. You need to know that. But not only in the end, it commends us in the moment right there in the moment, in the moment when we're humiliated, in the moment when we have suffered maybe loss, we will hear God whisper to our heart, I don't care what your boss says about you. You are my good and faithful servant. 
That's who you are. You served me, and you did well. Now, isn't that the voice you want to hear? Isn't that the commendation you really want to hear? Amen. Christians choose suffering over sinning because Christ has given us an example to follow. Christ has given us an example to follow. Yeah, well, I hear all of that. That sounds great. Uh, God tell, it's easy for God to tell us to choose suffering over sinning. That is really easy for him to say to us. Choose suffering over retaliating. To use weapons of love against our enemy instead of using weapons of war against our enemy. God is way up there and we are way down here in a rough situation. God never had a boss tell him to do a thing in his life. We've had multiple bosses since the day we were born telling us what to do, how to do it, and when to get it done. It's real easy for God to tell us to live this way, but he would say something different if he lived in the real world with real wicked people. That's probably what we're thinking right about now. I'm sure that's what the Christians were thinking right about now. As if Peter is anticipating our reaction to God's commands, he writes these words as a response. Let's go to the text, verse 21 and 23. Through 23. For to this you have been called. Called to do what? Suffer. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered. You know, Christ didn't just die in his sleep one night. You know that, right? He suffered a long time, and then he died. That's how he died. Because Christ also suffer, get this, for you. For you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Step for step. When he, commit, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. God only commands us to do something that he did himself. That's important for you and I to know if we're going to follow in his footsteps. He's not just sending down commands for us to live this way. Jesus is God coming down into our neighborhood, into our workplace, to do all that God commanded to do. That's reassuring. That's respectable. Jesus has walked in our shoes. He has entered our exact situation. He felt the sting of both the insults and the whips. 
he got intimately acquainted, up close and personal, with suffering unjustly for doing God's work God's way. He knows what he's talking about when he tells you and I to do this. He really knows what he's talking about. Peter says Christ suffered. Christ suffered for you and for me. Christ didn't suffer for his own benefit. He didn't need to walk a mile in our shoes. He didn't have to suffer unjustly, not at all. If anyone had a reason for saying, you know what, I'm gonna just pass on enduring unjust suffering and just skip to uninterrupted glory for the rest of my days, like, it would be the Lord. Like, if anyone had the right to say that, it would be him. But he didn't say that. And he didn't do that, and he didn't choose that. He suffered and then received glory. He wore a crown of thorns and then wore the crown of glory so that you and I could share in his glory by following his pattern. So that you and I could be a partaker of that inheritance by following in his pattern. Peter uses the word in the Greek, Hypogrammon, hypogrammon, and that's what we translate here in the word example. It's a little bit of a weak translation. Hypogrammon refers to a pattern of letters of the alphabet over which children would lay paper and trace so they could learn the alphabet and learn how to write. You picture that? Just picture someone taking, so here's the hypogrammon, and the child's taking a little tracing paper, and they're just, they're just slowly going over it so they can learn it. It suggests the closest of copies, an exact tracing that is indistinguishable from the original. They are so close. Which is the original, and which was the trace? I can't even tell. Christ endured unjust suffering not just as an example, not just as a pattern for living the Christian life. It is the pattern for the Christian life, brothers and sisters. It is the pattern of the Christian life that we are to lay over and trace our life with. Jesus didn't just tell us the way to live for God's glory. It's over there. Just go do it. That's the way to life. That's the way to God's glory. He didn't just tell us the way to God's glory. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an amazing God to be revered in worship and honor. And here's why. Jesus showed us the way to God's glory in his body on the tree. Jesus went first and then said, follow me. I'm only asking you to do something that I've done ahead of you, for you. Follow me now. Enduring suffering by not sinning against other people is how we enter into God's glory just like Christ did himself. So how do we do this? How do we endure suffering like Christ? Because that sounds hard, right? So let's get some application here. How do we do this? Well, Peter gives us a little checklist I don't know if this helps you or not, but I think of this little laminated card, and it's a little three-checkpoint checklist, all right? And we keep it with us when we go into work. 
maybe you could do that. That wouldn't be a bad idea. When we're getting treated unfairly at work, when we're getting that verbal lashing by the boss, and we start feeling the anger rising up and that revenge, that desire to just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna level the, the, the scales of justice right here, right now. And we start feeling that. It's rising up. We pull out this really short checklist out of our pocket. We check it to see if we are following Christ's example or if we started going and making our own footsteps. And here it is. It's not, it's not exhaustive. It's just a little checklist. One, do not retaliate physically and thereby sin. Do not retaliate physically and thereby sin. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. You know, when we're getting mistreated, sometimes we, we, we want to make the bad guy look really, really bad. So we kind of bend and stretch things because we feel justified in that because they are a bad person. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus did not sin against anyone in his suffering, even though it was unjust. He, get this, he did not take the fact that he was being treated unjustly as now a license to do wrong to the people who are wronging him. That's the principle here. He did not put his hands on anyone, even though they put their hands on him and foolishly thought they were binding his hands. He said, I refuse to put my hands on them. I choose to not put my hands on them. I will not do it. I will not retaliate. He did not strike back. He did not spit back. He did not kick back. When we do this, brothers and sisters, we are suffering just like Jesus. We're looking a lot like him Second checkpoint, do not retaliate verbally and thereby sin. Verse 23 here, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That means to, 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 like verbal abuse. That's what reviling is. You are, you are uncreating someone with your words. You're decreating them in a sense. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. I'm gonna, you're going to pay. I'm going to make you pay. He didn't say any of that. Peter is referencing Isaiah chapter 53, which was all about the suffering servant. Who's the suffering servant? Jesus Christ. He served by suffering. So Jesus endured verbal abuse, but he did not resort to using it himself. While other criminals were being hung beside him on the crosses, they made threats of violence. They made curses upon people's families. Jesus did not make any threats. I, Isaiah 53 actually says that he was silent like a lamb being led to slaughter. He opened not his mouth. He said, I'm not going to defend myself. You say what you want about me. You say what you want about me. I'm going to be silent. When we do this, family, we are suffering like Jesus. And let me tell you, when that happens, Christ looks good on you. Christ looks good on you. 
Third, do continue trusting God to judge justly. Verse 23, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Two things he didn't do, one thing he did actively do and pursue. And that's what we do. We continue to trust God. There's something that he actually did when he suffered. He trusted his entire life to God because he knew God would judge justly. That's why the doctrine of hell and judgment is actually a good doctrine. It keeps us from retaliating and blowing everything up in the world. We see in the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God does make things right in the end. He does make it right in the end. He doesn't leave the smallest thing unchecked and unaccounted for. God sweeps nothing under the rug. God pulls back the rug. That's what God does and goes, there it all is. God vindicated Jesus by raising him from death and putting to shame all those that put him to death. You got it wrong. You missed your chance. God will punish all those who refuse to repent of their unrighteousness. You need to know that if you're going to suffer like Jesus. You need to know and believe, and I mean like really believe, in deep places in your heart that might be embarrassing for you to talk about. I believe that God will make this all right. We need to trust that God will make things right in the end for us. God did this for Jesus when he suffered unjustly, and that is how you know, that is your evidence that God will make all things right for you. This is not just some imaginary thing. We're talking about something that historically happened and gave us evidence. We know. Christians choose suffering over sinning and retaliation because Christ has given us power to endure suffering. Christ has given us the power to endure suffering. Now, I don't, I don't know where all of you are right now in this message, but I'm going to be honest with you. With me, when I got to the part, this part of the message, at this point, this is what I'm thinking. Look, I'm really glad Christ gave me a reward, okay? And I am glad that he gave me, uh, you know, an example to follow to help me endure suffering. But this is too hard for me to do in real time. This, this is just too hard for me to do in real life. That's just where I'm at. Maybe that's where you're at as well. I don't know. You, we, we feel the weakness of our flesh, do we not? Can, can we say amen, right? We feel that. That's not theoretical and theological. You and I have a, we have a reaction to this. I feel weak. We still feel inadequate, even with all that God has given us, all these resources we've already talked about, we feel inadequate. I don't know that I can do this when it matters the most, when it, the moment of truth comes. Can I really do that? I don't know. And you know what? Jesus knows that about you. <laughs> Jesus knows that about you and me. 
He knows that we need more than a reward and a step-by-step example playbook. As great as all that is, he knows that we need his power to endure what he endured. He knows that we feel inadequate and we can't do it on our own. So you know what? He did something about that. He provided his power for us. Isn't that wonderful of him? Isn't he a wonderful God? Let's look at verses 24 through 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. That's why he made atonement. The result is that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Get this. For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. That is a word for elder, by the way, overseer. The shepherd and overseer of your soul. Christ's death for us, excuse me, Christ's death for us did more than just give us a sure reward to look forward to and an example that we are to follow. His death broke the power of sin over your life and over my life. Praise be to God. It broke the power. We are dead to sin and what it tells us to do and wants us to do so that we could live his way on earth. You can live like Christ in the earth. Oh, yes, you can. Because the cross says that you can, and the resurrection says that we can. You see, sin was our master. Sin was our boss. And so we had to do whatever it told us to do. Sin says, hey, you know what? You don't like that? You need to retaliate. You need to do that back plus another couple of lumps just for good measure. And we said, okay, we got to do it. The ma- we got to do what the master says. We got to do what the boss says. But now Peter says through his death, Jesus is our master. Jesus is our boss. We serve him. We, he tells us what to do and how to live. Look, look at Paul, Paul. Peter's saying the same thing Paul's saying. Look at Romans 6, 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin... So you were under the authority, you were under the power of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. I mean, you couldn't live God's way. Not only did you not want to, you couldn't live Christ's way. You didn't have the power to do it. Why? Because you were under someone else's power. You were under another authority, and you had to do what that authority told you to do. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. Whenever sin is your master, the reward is death. When you go out and do what it tells you to do, you get a paycheck, and the paycheck is dying, death, right? For the end of those things is death. But now, but now that you have been set free from sin, and see, and here's how you've been set free. You've come, you and I, we've come under the authority of someone else. We've become slaves of God. Now that you have been set free and you become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That sounds a whole lot like an imperishable inheritance to me. 
You see, Peter's saying and what Paul's saying before, we were, when we were treated unjustly, we retaliated and we sinned in response because we were a slave to sin. We couldn't do otherwise. We just kind of could pick how we did it. <laughs> but we were going to respond in that way because we had to do what our master told us. We couldn't stop from responding that way. But sin no longer rules us now because Jesus is our master. Jesus is our boss. Jesus gives us our assignments. And so he can t- when he tells us what to do, he gives us the power to do it. But here's the thing. Jesus is not like unjust earthly masters and bosses. He's not like any earthly boss that I've ever had or you've ever had. Like we have to find like a whole different category to put Jesus in as boss because he doesn't fit anywhere else. Peter says Jesus does rule us. He does have authority over our lives. He is the Lord. But he rules us like, get this, a shepherd and an overseer of our soul. Those words mean caretaker and guardian. Kind of like someone who's in the medical profession, a nurse or a doctor. You're going to take your pills. I'm exercising my authority. You're going to have surgery. I'm exercising my authority because I care for you. I am a caretaker. I'm a guardian. I'm guarding your life right now. These are gentle images of authority. Can you picture them? These are images, yes, of authority figures that yet offer help to weak things like sheep like you and me. I want that boss over me. I want that guardian, don't you? In other words, Jesus will give us what we need to endure suffering like he did. He will give us what we need to endure it. You don't have to conjure that up. You don't have to try to make that happen. He's going to give that to you for free because he knows you need it. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is living his way, right? He's going to give it to you. Do you need control over your mouth when you're treated unjustly? Is that what you need? Do you need control over your anger so that you can suffer like Christ step by step? Your shepherd and caretaker will provide that for you. He is your spiritual health care provider. And he will get it to you. Do you need patience to suffer like Christ? Do you need faith in God to suffer like Christ did? Your shepherd and caretaker will provide it for you in the moment, at the moment you need it. It may not come an hour early. It may come in the moment, but it will come. You can trust him because he's the shepherd and caretaker of your soul. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, guys. You are not living the Christian life on your own. 
you are living the Christian life with Christ. Christ will help you. Christ will provide for you all along the way. Praise his name. You don't have to worry. So ask him for what you need. When you find out what you need, ask him for what you need so that you can do what he has called you to do in the world and at work. That's the playbook. Let's pray. Shepherd and overseer of our soul, we love you. I pray that you would guide these sheep individually as they go to work on Monday. And I pray that you would guide this flock, great shepherd, called Crossway. Pray that you would help us choose suffering over retaliation. so that we might bring glory to you in the earth and maybe some might even be converted when they see us living like you. Enemies might get turned into friends. Jesus, we love you so much because you first loved us. We thank you for the good news that you will provide what we need in the moment to endure like you did endure. You won't let us pass out. You won't let us run out of steam. You will supply and keep supplying as much as we need. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that good word, the good word of the gospel. But I pray that you would help us live that out in our work, whatever that is, this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.